You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today I'm with Chase Granberry, who is using Phoenix and Elixir to build a log management and event analytics platform called Logflare. Chase, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. Do you want to start off by introducing yourself and letting people know a little bit more about the app that we're going to go over today? Yeah, so I'm uh, Chase Granberry and I'm building an app called uh, Logflare. And basically, it's a consolidated log management solution, like kind of like everything else that's out there right now, uh, Logly, PaperTrail, Splunk. But we want you to be able to bring your own backend. So um, all, all those solutions are like very expensive. And one of the reasons is that, uh, because they mark up the underlying storage costs. Uh, well, we want Logflare to be kind of like a proxy essentially to ultimately your data store. And uh, so you send logs to us, we send them to your data store. Um, you pay Google or Amazon or whoever for the storage and query costs, and then you just pay us to get 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 those there. And um, by doing that, we can you know hopefully provide a log management solution that's uh, like an order of magnitude less expensive than everything on the market currently. Yeah, that actually sounds really nice because I have looked at a couple of those log management SaaS apps and it's always like either the log retention is so low or you're paying like lots of money. It's pretty cool to see that happening. So how long has this been running in production for? Well, we've been officially taking traffic since I think March. Uh, So I don't know, around nine months. Okay. Uh, You mentioned we. Is there multiple people working on the project? Uh, it's me and uh, kind of like a contractor. I brought him in a few months ago to like kind of help with some of the harder stuff. And um, but yeah, there's there's two of us working on it currently. Nice. Yeah, I looked at uh, your website a little bit before this call, and there was like billions of log events being handled. Yeah, we're doing about uh, almost seven billion uh, a month now. Most of those, we don't have too many "quote unquote" agents yet. We have um, we have an Elixir agent. It's a logger backend. So when you use that, you can just do like logger dot whatever, and it sends it to us. Um, but then we also have a Cloudflare app. Um, Cloudflare is a CDN. They have an app store, and um, that essentially gets all the logs from Cloudflare the CDN and and sends them to us. Most of the our traffic is coming from that currently because that's that was initially the audience that we were targeting. I have not heard of uh, Cloudflare apps before. Just to make sure I understand that. So it's like your web server responds with some HTML, mm-hmm. and then your Cloudflare app intercepts that, mm-hmm. potentially rewrites things, but you know, you're know you in control of what you want to get rewritten, and then it just spits out the response that gets sent back to the user? Mm-hmm. Okay. So there's nothing like server-side that you need to do to set up the Cloudflare app. Correct, but basically there was no there was no really good logging story inside the Cloudflare ecosystem, so that's why initially I've been targeting Logflare at Cloudflare customers, um, and then hopefully we can kind of branch out like like we have the Elixir logger backend, which is really cool. We're using it in production and it works really well, and so I'm trying to get kind of some more people to play with that and. Um, you know, hopefully next year we'll be about building out a few more agents and 
um, trying to connect with some people from those communities and, and doing a couple of other interesting things around uh, logs that, uh, that, that I, don't, I don't see anybody really doing yet. So Okay. So when you say like Elixir logger backend, you just mean like an Elixir package you install, drop it into your dependencies, and, and then you just use it like any other library? Yeah, so you just um, add it to your mix file, and then uh, you set up a config, like you you know you add the config for it, and the config is just um, you know like your Logflare API key, and then the source, the Logflare source, which is um, like where your logs go. It has like an ID, um, so you just set those two things up, and then you can use the logger command. So typically, if you want to like log something in a console, you I mean, if you're on dev, you do like an io.inspect or uh, something like that. But if uh, if you want to log something for production, you do like a logger.warn uh, or logger.error or logger.info. And then um, if so, if you use that command, instead of going to a file or to the screen or whatever, it sends it to log, it sends it to Logflare. Yeah, that sounds really cool. But let's uh, let's rewind a bit then and talk a little bit about Elixir and Phoenix. So are you using that stack then for the web UI that people would interface with to take a look at the output of those logs, like the service that you provide basically? Uh, yeah. So everything is written in Elixir and Phoenix. Um, I mean, it's hundred percent. That's what we started with. And that's been great. Do you want to go into a little bit about like the, uh, decisions that you made to choose that? Like, did you look at other technologies beforehand or? Yeah. So basically I, Elixir was chosen because, um, well, I guess I, I need to rewind a little bit. So about a year and a half ago, I sold a previous software company that I had bootstrapped. I bootstrapped and ran that for 10 years. Um, and I was actually the non-technical founder. Um, so I basically did everything except write code. And um, we, we managed to, I managed to grow that um, to a decent sized business. And then right at the end of that, uh, we were actually, it was basically a big, like crawling infrastructure is what it ultimately was. Um, and at the end of that, we, and it was originally built on Ruby and Rails, and I mean, we were doing, you know, billions of pages a month, and it was all fine. But then some of my devs started getting into Elixir because they were Ruby guys. And and then towards the end of, uh, like, like basically about three months before I sold it, we had uh, started rewriting like the main crawling infrastructure in Elixir uh, because, uh, I mean, there's lots of reasons for that. But in that process, I started to learn just a lot about Elixir and Erlang, and it was all very compelling and very uh, interesting to me. I really like the fact that it was, that it's basically built on Erlang and that's been around for 30 years and is still very much like actively developed and you know it's not like the most popular thing out there but it's just stable and it's not only stable from like an infrastructure code perspective but it's just state like you know people are like actively progressing the, la the language I don't know, having elixir kind of backed by uh, erlang i just you know everything was proven been around for a long time i don't know it just it just felt stable to me and after being in software for like a long time and you know, I like stable, boring, <laughs> boring things. Um, it, you know, it's it's hard to build something meaningful on top of something that's changing all the time. I knew a lot about Elixir from that whole process. Um, and, 
so i mean that was basically the main reason why i chose to build this in elixir and then in terms of well, the other thing was that I knew this was like a logging service, right? So like if your site or app or whatever is using my service, like you're serving those requests, but I also need to serve those requests because for every request you get, like I'm going to get, I knew it had to be fast. And, um, it, you know, the options for that are, you know, I don't know, maybe Go and Elixir or something else that I didn't even know about, you know what I mean? I don't know. It, 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 was, it just all kind of like fell into place, I guess. And Elixir uh, really felt like a good fit. So you looked at a couple different things and ultimately decided that was the fit for you. Mm-hmm. Well, that and Phoenix got me like a lot of the way there in terms of the beta. And uh, in, a, in a couple of months, I was able to have uh, essentially a proof of concept that I um, posted in a couple of places. I didn't even have the Cloudflare app yet. I just had like an example worker code that you could use on your own account. And then I stood up a box on DigitalOcean and uh, within a couple days it was do it was getting like, uh, I don't know, a hundred requests a second, something like that. I mean, it was um, like people started using it and like they really liked it. So earlier you mentioned the JavaScript uh, ecosystem moving fast. It's like, how do you build something on top of that? So th does that mean that uh your Phoenix backend, is it just all server-side templates then, or is it, how, how do you have that set up? Uh, we started with just server-side templates and um, and then like WebSockets, like updating stuff on the page. That's still the way a lot of it works, but <clears throat> we um, built out the whole, you, you, so we actually store and you can search your logs now. And we built all that whole view with live view um, and I was fairly comfortable doing that just because, I don't know. I mean, I guess it's like LiveView has a JavaScript client, right? But it's, ha you know, I don't know. It's, it was either that or like something else. And, uh, and I just really liked how, I, I just really liked like the LiveView model, basically. It seems promising. It seems really interesting. I don't like single page apps. Like if we were to do, like if we were to not have used live view, I would have definitely, I would have used something that was more like update stuff on the page as needed and not deal with like a whole, you know, framework that deals with the route, like handles the routing and all that kind of stuff. I, you know, I wouldn't have had like a separate client, like a whole separate JavaScript app for the whole client, you know what I mean? And, and then just have Phoenix serve the back end. It would have, it would have been mostly server-side templates with a little bit of JavaScript sprinkled in. Uh, it felt like it meshed well with like the live view concept. And so, you know, that's, uh, and, and live view seemed pretty straightforward. And so that was, that was what we chose to go with. Okay. So just to make sure we're on the same page here, you're using live view just for little specific components of the page. You're not doing like, you know, zero routes, but everything is through live view. Uh, so we have mostly server-side templates. So like if you go to the homepage, Logflare, like that's a server-side template, but just the counters that have like logs per second and total logs logged, like that's live view, but the whole template is not. The only thing that's live view, fully live viewed is like if you actually do a search in your logs, like that, like once you hit search, then um, you get directed to a, like the actual search results page. And that whole interface is is all live view. Uh, on the topic of live view, 
Like how many live view connections do you usually manage? I don't think the, I mean, in terms of the number of people that actually use the interface every day, maybe it's a hundred. So the actual like live view connections, WebSocket connections is not any actual usage of the interface is not anything noticeable for us. The biggest bulk of our work is, you know, in actually just ingesting um, blocks and then and then storing them. Right. And those that in, ingesting of logs, that's all going through a Phoenix app? That's all going through the Phoenix app. It's all uh, one big app right now. There's nothing, you know, nothing's broken out. I thought about it, but I, there's no need to currently. I, I, you know, I don't really see a need to for like a very, very long time. Right. It's a monorepo monolithic application. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then do you have, uh, are you using like context in that or no? I had a little trouble understanding con- what contexts were supposed to be at first, but I think I get it now. But everything the user is going to interact with is going to live in like web. But once it starts kind of manipulating data, it's, you know, we try to stick that in context. Right. Can you uh, maybe rattle off a couple of contexts that you have? I mean, I guess it's like logs, source, and users are like kind of like the main ones you'll see. Or th- th- those are the main ones that people interact with, like, you know, actually through the UI. But then there's, um, you know, there's a lot of other stuff in the lib folder. I guess you could call it a context. That I don't even know if you can call it a context or not. But but we, we're, we're using a bunch of um, gen servers and stuff to, like, do a lot of things that's that's separate from the whole. I mean, I guess it's, it's not separate from the whole thing. But it's, you know, kind of a different concept. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So what does the rest of uh, your tech stack look like? Are, are you using Docker in development or production or no? But yeah, we're on, we're on Google Cloud. And um, so we use the way that I don't, I don't use Docker on my laptop, um, but we've set it up like in dev, but we've set it up to where um, when you push to master or staging, we have staging set up the same way. Um, but if you push to master or staging, Google Cloud build, um, gets trigger gets a trigger from GitHub, and then it essentially initiates the whole build process, um, and it builds a Docker image and puts that Docker image in the Google Images repository. I forget what that's called specifically. And then I uh, we're using like managed instance groups. Uh, we're not using Kubernetes. Wait, sorry to interrupt, but what is that exactly for people who are new to Google's platform? it's an instance and you can put it in a group and um, I, I think they launched managed instance groups maybe two years ago. But if you were to set up a load balancer, then you can point the load balancer at, at an instance group and in the instance group are in number of instances that the load balancer would send traffic to. And prior to managed instance groups, uh, it, that, that was, the instance group was whatever it was. Um, and you had to kind of like do auto scaling yourself. Manage instance groups will do um, auto scaling based on like request per second or uh, CPU load. Um, it will also help you do like rolling deploys so you can set it basically configure. Uh, so you have like your instance template, which is how you, what your instance is generated from. And if you make another instance template, you can do like a rolling deploy really easily with a managed instance group. And it'll like, it'll spit like, say if you have four servers, you do a rolling deploy, it'll like spin up 
another four servers, get those booted, and then shut down the old four, essentially, is what it does. So it kind of like, it kind of gets you what a lot of people are trying to get with Kubernetes, but packaged up in something a little bit more like user-friendly, I guess. So it's just, there's like zero configuration with it. Whereas, you know, Kubernetes was like a lot to, a lot to learn in terms of setting it up. Yeah. It's basically like the total opposite of zero configuration. Right. Right. So what, what made you go at GCP uh, initially? Was it, was it due to that managed instance or something else? Uh, it was the credits. <laughs> it, was what it, was. it was the free servers. Um, Always comes down to the money. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and and I had used AWS for ten years, and so I was like, oh, I'll try, you know, like I'll I'll try Google. Let's see. And I honestly, I really liked um, the Google Clouds, like their interface a lot better. I don't know, everything just seems to make a lot more sense to me than it ever did on AWS. Right. So, how many of those managed instances do you have running for the Phoenix app? We have six running uh, currently. And they typically hover around like 30%, 30 to, well, maybe 30 to 50% utilization. Wow. That's actually, uh, that's kind of a lot of servers up and running. Well, it's 7 billion requests a month. Oh yeah. I almost forgot about that. Yeah. (laughs) No, that's actually pretty sick that uh, 7 billion requests coming in. So I don't know how GCP classifies their servers, but like, High level, like how many CPU cores and memory do those servers have? Uh, each one has um, 16 cores and then 32 gigs of memory. The memory, though, is we've never been, we're basically like CPU bound. and Memory has never really been like a big deal. So when it comes to those managed instances, then do you basically, is it set up to where you just run one copy of the web app, web app on each instance? Mm-hmm. Yep. So every every instance is exactly the same. And then we've got a load a Google load balancer in front of it, and we have two instances uh, in each. So we're on US Central one, and then we have uh, we're using three zones. Uh, so there's two instances in in um, in three of the four zones in US Central. And then for these instances, even though they're managed, do you still get to pick like which operating system you run on it? Yeah, you can pick any, you pick anything you. you you set up an instance like you normally would. It's just uh, you define like an instance template, and that's what's that how that's how the instance gets created. So in the, in the instance template, it's like all the networking stuff, like the size, um, the storage, the operating system, and then uh, they have like a special like Docker optimized operating system that we use. And if you select that, then you can just put in like the URL to download the Docker image from. And uh, when it boots up the instance, it just boots it up, it downloads a Docker image, and starts everything up. Huh, that sounds pretty handy. But then what happens on the development side of things? Your app depends on a database. Like, are you running a database locally then, or? Oh, yeah. So I, we're on, uh, we have Postgres for, like, all the user stuff, like, you know, logins and the sources and, um, like, the user management, like, the actual you know, management stuff. The the logs were sending to BigQuery. But yeah, so on development, I just have like an instance of Postgres running. Okay. So when it comes to BigQuery, that is not something I've used personally. Does that work with Ecto or no? No, uh, it's, it's, they have like an HTTP interface, essentially like you stream 
and their library, their Elixir library kind of sucks, honestly, and it's none of it's Ecto compatible. Right. Now, going back to the development side of things, though, if you want to use your app in development, do you then have a separate BigQuery like development database? Yeah, it's uh, so I have like a whole dev. It's basically there's a couple different projects in in the Google Cloud. There's like production staging, and then there's um, my dev project and everything on my local machine just talks to BigQuery dev project. And now uh, going a little bit back to the production side of things, do you just run Cowboy like directly to the internet? Well, I guess it's in front of Google's load balancer, but are you running something else in front of that, like Nginx or no? Nope. It's the, the load balancer just goes straight to Phoenix, well, straight to Cowboy or Phoenix. Are you also building your assets then with uh, Phoenix Digest and letting the load balancer, I guess, serve those? Yep. Okay. So, and I guess also the load balancer that takes care of SSL certificates? Yep. Yeah, that sounds like a pretty sweet setup where it's like, you don't really need to do too much, click a couple buttons, and now you have SSL certs. Yeah, so we get our SSL certs from Cloudflare because they'll give you free SSL certs. And, and then they and then they also give you like a signed one to install on your load balancer. Um, so we did that. And so everything's secure. It hits the load balancer and then goes to the Phoenix app. And it's all, it's all pretty straightforward. And literally deploying is like push to master, wait a few minutes, make a new instance template, and then do a rolling deploy with the managed instance group. And then that, and that, that's pretty much it. Okay. So do you actually, do you want to just rewind then and just give us like a real step-by-step? Step? Like, let's say you're on dev and you want to push a new build to production. Can you just walk us through that? Yeah. So um, basically it's just whatever, do your whatever changes you want push it to GitHub staging uh, to staging. And then Google Cloud build detects that there's a new commit. It pulls that down and then does the build. And then once the build is done, it pushes that Docker image to the Google's container registry. And so then that's all done. I go into the container registry, I copy the URL. I think I could probably do all this programmatically, but I just do it myself in the interface. Um, but I just go in, I get the URL for that container. And then I copy my current instance template. So it copies all the same settings that I'm currently using. And then I just swap out the Docker image URL that I just copied. And then I hit save. So that gives me a new instance template. And then in the managed instance group, there's literally a button for rolling deploy. You just hit rolling deploy and um, you pick the new instance template and then you pick like how many instances you want it to bring up at a time, how many instances you want it to destroy at a time. Um, I'll typically just do like uh, one at a time so that, it's more, uh, so that it's a bit smoother. And then once you do that, just hit save. And after you hit save, it literally, it boots up an instance. It waits for that instance to become healthy. We have a health check endpoint uh, that both the load balancer and the instance group manager uses and that both of those ping it to make sure it can re receive traffic. So once both of those ping it and it becomes okay, uh, like it's like the minute the instance comes up, it starts pinging that endpoint. And so then, you know, once Phoenix and the whole app gets booted, um, then it starts serving traffic to those pingers. And then once those pingers are like, <clears throat> hey, this thing is serving traffic, then the load balancer starts serving traffic to it. Um, and then once that happens, 
then the managed instance group starts destroying uh, one of the older instances and it, it goes through shutdown process and shutdown process. Um, well, before that happens, so anytime you delete an instance, if it's behind the load balancer on the Google Cloud, uh, the load balancer immediately stops serving traffic to it. So and in the, on the load balancer, there's a connection draining timeout. It's by default, it's set to um, 300 seconds. So you hit delete and it actually won't shut down that instance uh, for 300 seconds. So you hit delete and the load balancer says, okay, this thing wants to delete um, and it stops serving traffic to it for the connection draining timeout that's set on the load balancer by default 300 seconds. Uh, and then once that 300 seconds is up, then the instance initiates its like shutdown procedure. And then that's when we get the SIG term, we handle the SIG term and we initiate like a graceful shutdown of the app and then everything finally like disappears. <clears throat> and then once that one's shut down, then, and, and, uh, then that process happens again, you know, for one more instance and it goes through that until it's done all your, all your instances. So does that mean from end to end then you wait five minutes for each one times six servers, like takes, I guess, over half an hour for everything to be updated? Yeah, we well we do it. Uh, we t I typically let's well, either one at a time or two at a time. It just kind of depends. But yeah, I mean it's about half an hour. Because um, I'm on production too. Depending on what kind of changes I make, you can do uh, you can do a canary deploy, which is if there's something deployed, I'm like, ah, eh, this might affect things weirdly. Um, I'll do I'll just bring up one version of the new instance and kind of let it sit there for 20 minutes. And then if everything looks normal, then I'll like do the rest of them. Yeah. I think that's a really cool workflow because I don't know, I think a lot of people, sometimes myself included, it, they get hung up on trying to automate everything. Like if you just get push your code, it should just be running in production with no other work. But there's like a huge amount of value in being able to make those decisions like you're just talking about. Like I've never used GCP's uh, UI, but I, I'm guessing like what you were describing before like saving the template and clicking the rolling restart strategies. That's just basically at the play time, clicking a drop down box, selecting two out of six or whatever, and clicking a button. Like you get to have that per deploy tweakage. Like you can, you can make different deploys different based on the severity of the deploy. Yeah. And the, the thing that's, I mean, the thing that's very different about something like Logflare is that it's very stateful. It's like the opposite of state. Like, you know, if you have like a CMS, and there's never anything in flight except for like a web request, then sure. I mean, you, you may want to make it so that you can like, so that everything happens like much faster, but you know, we have to make sure that events all uh, get inserted correctly. And so, you know, there's, we should let an instance sit there for five minutes without, re without receiving any new events so that we can make sure that, you know, there's nothing left on the server that needs to get inserted, like that sort of thing. So, like that's really what's, for us, it's just with the type of thing that it is, I wanted to make sure that we did as much as we, that we're doing as much as we can do to like not drop events. You know what I'm saying? Those gen servers you mentioned before, are they just doing some work then during those 300 seconds to make sure everything gets processed? They're just doing their normal thing. And I mean, typically an event actually lives on our one of our boxes for like a, a few seconds, if that. If it just does its thing, without receiving any new events, everything should be empty. That's all worked out for us for us pretty well. Yeah, so. Okay. So do you actually use your own tool to kind of log your own stuff, kind of? I do, I do. 
Uh, and if you go to logflare.app and you, you scroll down a little bit, we have like two example dashboards that I built with this whole thing from our stream of logs. <clears throat> one is like the Cloudflare logs. And then the other one is like the Elixir logs. If you click the Elixir one, that's what I look at every day to manage, like to make sure that everything's working like as it should. Um, and then I actually uses the Logflare uh, logger backend and sends, uh, so our, our production environment actually sends production logs to staging. And so staging is always doing something like meaningful. And so we, we try not to like mess with staging too much other than, you know, I don't know, we're, we're trying to use our own stuff. You know what I mean? And so, yeah, because we want it to be useful for everybody else. And, and if I don't like using it, then, you know, I don't think anybody else will either. So, yeah, I think that's a, a really good use case. It's like, if you can scratch your own itch to do something and you continue to use it, ultimately the thing you develop is going to be way more useful than trying to just make something for someone else where you're not even interested in it. Yeah, I think so. So you mentioned, you know, other people and, and one of your main reasons for using this app is that uh, it could end up being a lot cheaper than other managed log services. And I didn't look at this on your site before the call, but can people just start paying you through the site? Like, are you using Stripe or something to handle that? Uh, we haven't built the billing system yet. Um, so that's like literally next on my to-do to list. Mostly it's, I haven't built a billing system because I wanted to get to like, so with these Google Cloud credits, you could do, it was like, we got three grand and then we got 17 grand, but we had to like use all those up. And then last week we got like 80 grand. Hold on, hold on. You know, I'm interrupting now. I have to. What do you have to do to just wake up and get $100,000 in credits from Google? Um, well, so I applied. It was like a cloud. It was like a Cloudflare Google thing. But Google's got they've got a lot of these partnerships uh, with a lot of different organizations. I'll have to find the links. I don't remember exactly what it is, but it's like a startup program that that they do, and you can apply for it. Um, and if you get into it, then and you get approved, then you can get the initial level is three thousand dollars in cloud credits. And there's some other benefits, but the free servers is like really what it's about. And essentially, uh, if you use those credits in a certain amount of time, then you can apply for the next level of credits. The next level of credits is $17,000. And then if you use that, you can apply for the next level. The next level of credits is $80,000. And, uh, and that's what we just got granted uh, last week. What is the time period of when you have to use those credits up? They give you 12 months. Okay. So you had like a year to spend the 17000 mm -hmm. And I guess like at this point, it's the storage that's killing you, right? Uh, it's actually, so we don't store that many. We only store seven days worth. It's mostly just like processing the, like bringing them in and then shipping them off. Like we really, the, the, the majority of our costs is in just those six servers. Um, I, a lot of it's in, inserting into BigQuery and some of it's storage, but, but the actual like processing the requests coming in, it, it was kind of surprising for me like that, that would be a, a lot of the expense, but that's turned out what it is. Yeah. I guess that makes sense, right? Like you're not storing everybody's logs forever. The whole point of your service is that you off, you know, you offload that to the user's backend. 
So what is, what is those, uh, well, I guess it's not too important, but like the managed instances, do you actually have to pay extra for those or does that just, or is it like, you know, if you use this, you kind of just get it, but you pay for the hardware? Yeah, no, if you use it, it's not extra um, for a managed, like if your instances are in a managed instance group, you just pay for the instances as you normally would. And, you know, I think we could probably, I, you know, I haven't been like super conservative with the servers because they've been free and and I've also needed to like, like I wanted to get those, like the, I, want, I mean, I wanted to use the server money to do a couple different things. Like A, I, I just learned, you know, I ran a software company before, but I never actually did any of like the actual programming. So this year has been a, a bit about me learning Elixir and, uh, and like that's one piece of it. But then now I need to actually learn how to scale it across multiple servers. Like that's a whole different proposition and so one of the goals of like the startup program for me was to like, okay, like let's actually get this thing to where we are getting a bunch of traffic so that I can have something like real world where I actually need multiple servers more, you know what I mean? And honestly, like we didn't need multiple servers until like three months ago, you know? I mean, we were serving 3 billion requests a month on one server. Jeez. And that's the one server you mentioned before, whatever it was like. 16 cores or something like that 32 gigs of ram i think it was a 32 core box you know i didn't even need multiple servers until like i had a crap load of traffic so like if you sign up for a logflare account right now um you're rate limited but you're rate limited at like 50 events a second i mean i think it's it's over 100 million events a month uh at 50 events a second so you, right now you can sign up for free and send us 100 million events a month and we'll insert those into bigquery for you you know so we're doing like for the free plans right now, like we're doing a lot. So once we have like actual paid plans and the free plan is pared back significantly, I don't even know if I'm going to need six servers for another number of years. You know what I mean? Like, like we'll be able to, I mean, unless people really start using it, paying us to use it, but then that'll, that'll be a good thing, you know? Mm -hmm. So you mentioned uh, something about rate limiting. So how do you have that set up in the Phoenix app or Elixir app, I should say? Rate limiting is basically, it's essentially, it's, it's a gen server. And so we have a lot of counters. So we have like the counters, one counter is like just how many events you sent us for a source since the app booted. And that gets incremented with every event that comes in. And for the rate limiter, basically just runs every second. And it reads what the events are now uh stores those in state and when it runs again it reads what the events are now and then takes the difference of those two things and that's your rate for the last second then it puts it in a bucket it's a little bit more complex than that though because we use like the rate limit is really an average of a minute's worth of seconds and so this way you get like some bursting capabilities like it's not a hard rate limit. So if your rate limit's 50 a second and you're at 50 a second for the whole minute, then you, you, you're not going to be able to burst. You, so you basically get like 3,000 requests that you can do in a minute. So you could do 3,000 in one second and then you hit your rate limit because the average over the minute is 50. But if you're at like, if you're at 50, then you don't get any bursting, like you're constant. So that, that, that's how the, it works on like one box. But the rate limit is like cluster wide and, and figuring out how to do rate limiting across a cluster was a little interesting. We're actually using Phoenix Tracker 
to broadcast all the rates, like all the current rates of all the sources to like, so every box knows the current rate of every source on every box. And now all that stuff gets updated like 10 times a second. And then, um, and then it get it all gets added up like cluster wide. So every time, uh, every time a box sends all the rates to all the other boxes, all the other boxes, when that happens, like the sum of the rates across all boxes for each source gets cached. And then when a request comes in, so, so now each box knows total rate cluster wide for every source. So then when a request comes in, it just checks the local cache uh, for the, the current cluster rate. That's uh, a pretty interesting setup. So I do not have experience like running a multi-cluster or multi-server Elixir application. Is that something you Googled for you? Well, I think most people, I think most people would probably just use Redis and we probably could have, should have, I don't know. I mean, we kind of put a little prototype together of the Redis one and the, I don't know, the counters weren't quite working right. And I didn't know if that was, I had like um, this guy that I'm working for do that. And I didn't really get into the code that much. I was, I was kind of prototyping the tracker version and he was prototyping like the Redis version. And, uh, and I don't know, I just, I just ended up going with the tracker version and I don't know, I just didn't feel like dealing with Redis. Um, not that Redis is like a lot to deal with. It's really not at all. It's very easy, but this whole process for me too, is about like learning Elixir. There's a, a ton of cool stuff that you can do with a cluster if you have the use case for it, you know? So I, I felt like, okay, we have the cluster, everything's talking to each other. Like, why can't we just make this work? And, uh, we ended up making it work and it works really well. We have like we have like a fail, we had to put in like a fail safe. So if for some reason, like a box doesn't have like the latest rates on it, if the cluster rates on it are older than five seconds, then it basically looks at the local uh, node uh, rate and multiplies it times the number of nodes that it knows about. And so, uh, so it's kind of like a fail safe sort of thing. So like, hey, if I'm not really sure about the current rate of the cluster for the source, then I'm gonna assume it's like six times my rate. But yeah, I mean, there were some things that we need to do around that, but you know, ultimately it's, it's been a pretty clean setup and it's been work, working really well. I mean, other than I, I have, I've never had to like reboot anything. Uh, I mean, we're deploying like pretty frequently, but nothing is like out, outright crashed in terms of like the app. So I, I feel like I could just kind of ignore it for a long time and it would be, it would be, and it would be fine. I like the sound of that. <laughs> So after all is said and done here, and this thing's been up and running for quite some time, uh, like what's some of your best tips and, and lessons learned from building this project? For me personally, I I, I, uh, I like think about stuff way too much when it comes to this. Like I found that if I just start doing it, things happen a lot faster. I'll dread doing something because I'm like, oh, I don't want to even like deal with getting into that right now. But then when I do it, everything seems to go much easier than uh, or much, and much quicker in Elixir than than I would expect. And so, I don't know, I, I think just with anything, I mean, this is more, I don't know what kind of tips you're going for, but I, I guess with anything, and I have to constantly tell myself is like, just start, you know, and like, just because once you start, it all goes a lot faster than you ever think it will. I mean, everything I've learned this year has been like completely new. And so I don't really know if there's a single tip that I can think of right now, but use Phoenix, use Elixir. It's, 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 it's pretty straightforward, you know? Like that's the tip. It's a pretty good tip. 
Just use Phoenix and Elixir. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, before I wrap this up, do you want to share any links to maybe a personal site or a Twitter account, GitHub profile? Uh, on Twitter, I'm Chasers. So C-H-A-E-R-S. Pretty active there. On uh, Logflare is logflare.app. We're also on GitHub at github forward slash logflare. Check it out. I mean, I love feedback on everything. Uh, like I said, totally new to Elixir this year, new to programming this year. Um, and it's been a blast and I've really enjoyed it. And I hope that, um, I hope that some people, some Elixir people out there will check it out and use, and use Logflare because I think it's pretty cool. Hopefully we can provide something valuable and fun to use. Yeah, no, it sounds like a pretty cool project. And then after this show, I will be checking it out. Yeah, I appreciate that. So Chase, thanks so much for coming on the Running in Production podcast. It was really great having you on. Thanks a lot for having me. And on that note, to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running in Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.